You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Lifelong Learning, featuring thought leaders in the field of continuing medical education. Lifelong Learning is presented in cooperation with the Alliance for CME, the International Association of CME Professionals. Here's your host, Senior Vice President of Educational Strategy for Prova Education, Lawrence Sherman, FACME, CCMEP. Many physicians only think about CME when they realize that it's time for a relicense or a recertification, but it really does play a much larger role. CME content is designed and developed based on educational needs assessments, and it's important to consider the needs of all physicians in the CME process. But there are times that there's content that isn't relevant to the needs of many learners. What can practicing physicians say about the CME content that is most needed? How can they find it? What are some of the current shortcomings, and what are the best modes of delivery? Joining us to discuss these and other questions are two distinguished guests, Professor of Oncology and the Director of CME at the City of Hope in Duarte, California, Dr. Robert J. Morgan, and Dr. Jason Lazar, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Non-Invasive Cardiology at State University of New York, Downstate College of Medicine. And they're representing the continuum of CME from educators to learners. Welcome, Drs. Lazar and Morgan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start off with a question to the two of you, but Dr. Morgan, I'd like you to answer first. Okay. Oncology and cardiology are very interesting specialties from a CME perspective. What are your thoughts on meeting educational needs based on your experience, both as an educator and a practicing clinician? As a CME program director, you pointed out in your initial introduction that CME programs and CME educational interventions are put together based on what used to be called needs analysis. The current terminology is now called gap analysis, and it's also very much dependent on an individual learner. So honestly, I think that CME planning is not necessarily that specialty-specific anymore because what we're doing is we're trying to use areas of medicine where there seems to be a gap in the practice versus the research findings that would indicate better patient outcomes. And if we can find those gaps, either as an individual physician learner or as a CME department, and then design effective interventions to try to bridge those gaps, I think that that's where the improvement in patient outcomes will occur. And I'm not sure it's that specialty-specific anymore based on the way that education is planned. Sure, that sounds good. So, Dr. Lazar, let me rephrase the question a little bit based on what Dr. Morgan just said. If CME really is about patient care, the continuum of care, the management of patients to reflect better outcomes, how do you look at CME as a learner? How do you pick what CME that you'd want to participate in? I guess, you know, there's a lot of practical logistical issues. And, you know, my personal feeling is probably no one size fits all. So there are different venues in terms of, you know, meetings, subject matter. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that a CME subscriber would choose. I think more than just a specialty-based approach are overlapping issues that cross different specialties as well. And I think what's going to become increasingly important in the future, and this may be to what you're addressing, is is the linkage between this gap assessment and also outcomes assessment. How to assess not only the knowledge base obtained, but also how do you make that applicable to measuring a distinct change in patient outcomes from such an activity. As we look at these gap analyses and really look at the needs, do you see a role for 
inter- and intraspecialty education. So perhaps, Dr. Lazar, bringing together invasive and non-invasive cardiologists and maybe even emergency medicine physicians when you talk about acute coronary syndromes. Is that something that you could see making a bigger impact on patient outcomes than siloed education to each of those specialties? Yeah, absolutely. I think your term of silo is, is perfect. And I think everybody understands that handoffs is, you know, an improvement of handoffs. That is the transfer of care of a patient from one practicing party to another is very important, is a pitfall, and it represents a huge opportunity for improving clinical practice. Take the patient with acute coronary syndrome. Yes, they start with the emergency department, you know, may translate to a primary care physician, cardiology gets involved, and within cardiology, obviously, there are different specialties as well, including, you know, the interventional cardiologists. So, yeah, I think in terms of overlapping disciplines, that's a very important area to bridge. As I said before, I think another area to bridge is actually gap assessment and outcomes assessment. And then third is obviously, I think if one is going to embrace the concept that CME is really lifelong learning and it postdates, you know, GME education, graduate medical education, then a linkage between some of the processes in formal resident and fellowship training to that of lifelong training. So I think there lies three important bridges. If I can, Dr. Morgan, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about measurement of gaps and what you think is important and what the measures, baseline measures, and what reference points you think are important to use. I can speak better for oncology in that kind of a situation, but I wanted to go a little bit beyond, because it does affect the question that you asked, what Dr. Lazar was saying, because I think that the gaps and the bridging needs to occur, not just between non-interventional and interventional cardiologists and ER doctors, but even from example, from an oncology standpoint, there are so many improvements and so much new information in other specialties of medicine that in order to do an effective CME planning process, one must have all of the various stakeholders involved, including nursing, including other specialties that are planning and have an opinion on what it is that's important in their specialties that is a generalized body of information that's necessary for the knowledge of all the specialists. So as an oncologist, I also have to know about the new things going on in cardiology. And I think that one of the ways that we can do those gap analyses, one way that I'm familiar with using them is with national guidelines. For example, in cancer medicine, we can use a gap analysis looking at, for example, National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines or American Society of Clinical Oncology guidelines, and then look within our own practices or within our own institutions to see how well we're following those. And physicians can help us identify what those gaps are as a CME provider, I can then use those gaps to try to facilitate educational interventions to try to close those gaps. And then later, the easiest outcomes to look at are three or six month, basically self-professed, have I changed my practice situations? Although what we're trying to do is actually be able to measure objective information that practice has changed, or even the goal of all CME the holy grail, as I like to put it, is how have patients done? Are they doing better? Now, that's very hard to measure. I know one of the outcomes in cardiology that's been measured and has been written about is, for example, taking the amount of patients that are prescribed an aspirin when they come in with chest pain. And I know that that's one of the ways that that's measured is by looking at the pharmacy's prescriptions of aspirin to a emergency room based on the diagnosis of the patients that have been admitted. So that's one way to obtain at least objective information about what patients are being prescribed. And then the outcomes analysis is something entirely 
further on. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Lawrence Sherman, and joining me to discuss what can practicing physicians say about the current state of CME is the director of CME for the City of Hope, Dr. Robert J. Morgan, and Dr. Jason Lazar, who, amongst other things, is director of the Cardiology Fellowship Training Program at State University of New York, Downstate College of Medicine. I wanted to follow up, Dr. Morgan, on what you were just saying as far as outcomes assessments in CME. It became all the rage a couple of years ago when people said, oh, we need to start doing outcomes measurements. But the reality is we've always had to evaluate. We just may not have been using the right evaluation methods, or many CME providers may not have been using those methods. So now that we're really focused on a minimum level of competence moving into performance and maybe even patient outcomes, as you referred, I'd like you both to think about and comment, is it okay to just measure changes in competence? And if you can't get to changes in patient level data, are we okay measuring changes in competence? And Dr. Lazar, why don't you start? I think any worthwhile analysis is probably multi-pronged and simply looking at one facet probably is limited in its effect. On the other hand, I think the whole metric, you know, methodology really, A, is a complex one, B, difficult to measure or and or expensive to measure, and C, really, I think, escapes a repeatability standard as well as a commonly accepted standard. So I think it's a very difficult thing to do in practice. So different groups, physicians, hospitals, interest groups, you know, focus on various aspects of it, but I think it's challenging. And to date, the most effective metric strategy, I'll call it, probably doesn't exist and probably is not universal for all the different CME activities. That's an interesting perspective. Dr. Morgan, what are your thoughts on that? I completely agree with Dr. Lazar. I think everyone has been trying to figure out better ways to measure the effects of our educational interventions. And one problem, I think, inherent in the idea of trying to do these outcomes measurements is that people don't learn on the basis of one intervention. It usually takes several interventions in order to affect any type of change unless there's something you know, really earth-shattering that that physician is learning on the basis of that particular educational intervention. And I think that measuring the effects of a single intervention is extremely difficult. There are some groups that are now wanting to design multi-intervention strategies based on looking at a specific question of, are we changing a specific question? For example, are more people getting Pneumovax vaccine? Okay, looking at that specific question, designing a several-pronged intervention strategy aimed at the specific target audience that they're looking at, and then measuring pre- and post-usage of Pneumovax vaccine. I mean, those types of things we can do. And I think that a lot of times CME people and maybe even the Accreditation Council, although I'll probably be pilloried for saying this, may be too ambitious in what we're trying to measure in terms of outcomes. You know, is there anything that either one of you would like to just sort of say to sum up what you're thinking now about the impact and the needs of CME in general on the practicing physician? I think I'd like to go back to the point of let's entitle it, you know, from lifelong learning from GME to CME. It seems to me that You know, as the director of a pretty significant training program, we have 31 trainees, that GME really has taken a series of steps to not only teach different core competencies, in fact, there's six, patient care, medical knowledge, patient-based learning, interpersonal and communication skills, professional and systems-based practice, but also to evaluate every trainee on the basis of this. 
The American College of Cardiology basically proposed a portfolio several years ago. And the portfolio was really one designed for the cardiology fellow, if you will, to chart their annual progress. And that progress could be anything from number of procedures accrued to percentage of mandated conferences attended, and then to reflect back and state some goals for the following year of training. The tool has been developed. There are several, you know, versions, and I think, you know, a number of institutions are trying to pioneer this. But I think the expectation was to really go from a GME portfolio to a lifelong portfolio. And I think that this has direct ramifications. Take the cardiology fellow who participates in, you know, X number of cardiac catheterizations that then goes on to be a non-invasive cardiologist. And although they trained or have a certain number of, you know, pulmonary artery catheterizations done, you know, after five, six, seven years of being in a situation where they may not perform this particular technique, and I don't mean to make this comment just procedurally oriented, but take it for any competency, performance-wise or, or other, they not do it, well, then maybe one should make a good case that should the need arise, they shouldn't do it. So I think that we spend a lot of time trying to stand on ceremony to figure out who should or should not pay and what activities should be, you know, restricted in terms of funding and not sort of paving the way for a smoother transition from GME to CME. I'd certainly be interested in Dr. Morgan's opinion on this. I think that there has to be a smooth transition between graduate medical education and continuing medical education. And honestly, from a CME provider and planning person. I would like to see, at least in the later stages of graduate medical education, I would prefer to see some form of a an integration of the two elements of medical education, maybe even taking the students that are finishing or within their last couple of years and introducing them to the CME world in terms of trying to identify those gaps based on their knowledge bases and based on their current training and to try to integrate more physicians into being able to help plan educational interventions. And I think that that type of a approach may allow a smoother transition between the graduate training programs and practice years. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Robert J. Morgan and Dr. Jason Lazar. Thanks to both of you for spending time with us this week on Lifelong Learning. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring thought leaders in the field of continuing medical education. Lifelong Learning is presented in cooperation with the Alliance for CME, the International Association of CME Professionals, and is hosted by Lawrence Sherman.